0: And the other thing we can do is, even more as historians, is, is, is confront a, a word that's often used, which is unprecedented. You know, the talk since 2015 was often of an unprecedented refugee crisis. And those are the three words that tripped out, you know, off everyone's tongue. And I have to say, you know, there are precedents. It's not unprecedented. So it becomes you know, incumbent on us to think what is precedented and, and what is unprecedented and if you say well the numbers are unprecedented i can say no they're not as a historian if, if you say um the um the challenge of addressing uh the refugee crisis is unprecedented i can say no it's not you know because you've only got to go back to to the 1940s for example to see what was happening then
1: You are listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Welcome back to part two of our two-part dive into the history of modern refugees. The person you just heard is our guest, Professor Peter Guttrell of the University of Manchester, and I'm your host, Aidan Thomason. Today, you're going to hear the second half of my conversation with Peter, which will cover the 1951 UN Convention on Refugees and the creation of the UNHCR, and then we'll follow that line up to the present. If you haven't heard last week's episode, I recommend you pause this and go listen to the first half of our conversation. But here's a quick recap of what Peter and I covered in that episode. As borders began to develop and crystallize in the 19th century, the world began to see groups of displaced people, refugees, who were fleeing across borders to escape violence. The creation of new nation-states after World War I led to groups fleeing and new countries deciding who they wanted to allow in and who they didn't. The rise of totalitarianism in the 1930s created even more refugees. And then after the end of World War II and its immediate aftermath, the world had millions upon millions of people displaced by war. By the time the 1950s arrived, the world had an estimated 165 million refugees out of a total global population of about two and a half billion people. There were 60 million people displaced in Europe due to the war, 15 million in South Asia largely due to the partition of India, 1 million Palestinians were displaced following the creation of the State of Israel, and 90 million displaced in the Far East due to the Japanese occupation of China and the 1949 revolution that led to the creation of the People's Republic of China. All of this means that, roughly speaking, over 6.5% of all people on earth were refugees, there became a pressing need to have some international mechanism to deal with the refugees who are moving all over the world. A response came in 1950 in the creation of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, aka UNHCR, and then in, in 1951 in the form of the UN Convention Relating to the Status of Refugees.
0: We, we, we've looked at the kind of explosion, as it were, of, of people on the move in the late 1940s. And there are There are two organisations that were set up um, to address the issue of of refugees. Uh, One was called the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, and that got going in 1943-44, so before the end of the war. And basically, uh, as far as refugees were concerned, it saw its role as trying to uh, support these displaced people to uh, return. To their homes. And it was followed in 46, 47 by an international refugee organization, which was basically um, doing similar sorts of, of things, um, but um, increasingly turning its mind to the question of, the, of those refugees who did not want to return to their homes. Um, so it was beginning to encourage programs of, of what was called resettlement so not repatriation but resettlement and so using voluntary organizations to help people <clears throat> to resettle in latin america for example south america australia other parts of the world but there was also a realization that it hadn't completely uh, addressed that and that there were large numbers of refugees still in need of of protection of one kind or another and there were several months and months of discussion leading to the the 1951 un refugee convention which was eventually adopted by a relatively small number a dozen or so states not not the united states um, which we could say something about but uh britain France, Belgium, and so on, Western European countries primarily, not exclusively. And they decided on a convention that would focus upon assisting or protecting refugees. And they came up with a definition of who is a refugee. Um, And a refugee, according to the convention, was an individual who had a well-founded claim of persecution on certain sorts of grounds, uh, race, religion, and so forth, membership membership of a social group.
1: The actual text of the 1951 convention defines a refugee as a person who, quote, as a result of events occurring before the 1st of January, 1951, and owing to well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, is outside the country of his nationality and is unable or, owing to such fear, is unwilling to avail himself to the protection of that country, or who, not having a nationality and being outside the country of his former habitual residence as a result of such events, is unable or, owing to such fear, is unwilling to return to it. Fun fact about this convention, the United States has actually never signed on to it. Although it has signed on to the 1967 Protocol, which we'll get to later, here's why the Convention matters.
0: Um, and that was very important because it 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 made it incumbent; it, it required the individual to demonstrate that he or she had a well-founded claim. Your claim could be turned down, in other words, if your claim was accepted um the important right you had as a refugee as a recognised refugee was that you couldn't be returned to your country of origin against your will and that's fundamental fundamental then as now you know you if you have recognition under the convention you cannot be forcibly returned uh, to to the country of origin um and, unless you agree uh and and that that right was enshrined in the convention and more and more states eventually signed um adhere to that um that rule but there are other things that are important about the convention Aiden. one it one is that um, it it provided that a refugee was someone who had been persecuted as a result of events in europe prior to 1951 well you know you you could you could if you signed up sort of finesse that a bit but basically it's saying europe prior to 1951 persecution so you can begin to see this is a convention that's that's as it were you know designed to say to the soviet union you are the you know you're the enemy here uh because you're uh persecuting people and they don't want to return because they fear the threat of persecution as members of the wrong social class or members of the wrong religion and so on and so forth um, it it becomes complicated because eventually the convention these restrictions are relaxed in in 1969 uh 67 i beg your pardon um it, it means that it's looking back as much as it's looking forward if you sign the convention. And one of the things that's always intrigued me is that you've got the convention and you've got something else that survives after 1951, which is the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR. The two are kind of closely connected. They're both still in existence. Um, But the UNHCR's job is to kind of operate under the convention well you could then say wait a minute UNHCR is actively supporting hungarian refugees in 1956 how could it do that this is not 1951 or pre 1951 this is 1956 how 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 are they part of the convention how are they part of the UNHCR's um you know uh, regime and and the answer is that the lawyers in Geneva which is where UNHCR is, ba- is based said yes why are they refugees because they're protesting communist rule when was communist rule set up before 1951 so uh, it's happening in 1956 this revolt against communism in Hungary but it's happening because communism was already in place before 1951 so they're eligible and um, and this this is always uh, fascinated me because it suggests that you've got an institution UNHCR and you've got a convention which is very very important but there's a degree of wiggle room there's a degree of flexibility you you're not as it were totally in a in a kind of bed that you can't escape from uh, and and that's you know and of course UNHCR eventually spreads its its remit and 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 so begins to get involved in in, in Algeria in the late 1950s, when there's when a revolt against the French rule, um, and later on in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. But it never gets involved in India uh, until 1971, uh, when there's a war between um, uh, the two halves of Pakistan, East and West Pakistan, which leads to the formation of the state of Bangladesh in 1971. And then UNHCR is involved, but it doesn't get involved in partition. Uh, and it doesn't get involved in lots of other episodes as well, because it's either because it's not welcome. Remember, states can always say, we don't want you on our territory. This is us. This is our, our sovereign state. We're not going to be dictated to by, by you. Um, so it always has to tread carefully and, and sort of ask permission to, to come and get involved.
1: I then circled back to the partition of India, which Peter had mentioned several times and the fact that UNHCR hadn't gotten involved in it. For those who don't know, the partition of India was when the former British colony of India was divided into the countries India and Pakistan, with the idea being to create one Hindu and one Muslim majority state. It was the last major formally forced migration caused by a border redrawing. And the current animosity between India and Pakistan can be traced back to this moment. If you've never learned about it, like I hadn't until last year, I'd recommend looking into it more after this episode.
0: It's really worth reading about. There are a lot of Indian historians who are doing great work on, on the partition of India, ha- have been for uh, 20 or 30 years, <clears throat> young scholars doing fantastic work. And one of the things that's that's coming out of their work is is partly that it's not a momentary thing. I mean, of course, there's a rupture in 1947 and lots of people flee across the borders. but um, one scholar talks of the long partition. So this is a, this is a protracted episode, particularly um, in, uh, in, the, um, uh, in the western, uh, sorry, in the eastern part of, of, of India, Bengal. Um, but also it's, it's important work, because going back to what we were talking about at the beginning about refugees as actors, um, of course, the state says, this is what we're going to do for you relatedly this is this is how we're going to rehabilitate you. That was a that was a favourite word of the of the 40s and 50s. We're going to rehabilitate you. The refugees said, we don't want to be pushed around. Um, so you've got refugees who are kind of asserting themselves and saying, we want rights. We don't want charity. We want rights, and and we want the right to determine how we live, where we live. Don't push us around. So you know, if you do more reading on partition, I I hope you you'll begin to to, to To read more about the way in which refugees are not as it were inanimate they're not just plastic uh you know objects of government intervention governments always want to push people around um but um people people fight or resist being pushed around and i always find that rather encouraging
1: so asking about um the unhcr's evolution because obviously at, at this point in the present it's basically the the final authority on refugees around the world so how did that evolve when did other states like the us start getting involved and when did it its reach expand
0: mean, the, the unhcr has thousands and thousands of staff now all around the world and, and the budget I, I can't remember the precise figure um but it's it's grown in ways that were never anticipated at the time when it was set up in 51 it was given a kind of three-year lifespan that's also interesting to think that people thought we'll, we'll wrap all this up in three years so by 45 uh, 40 by uh, 54 55 um everything will be done and dusted i i think what happened then was that unhcr made itself useful to to states it, it could give them a kind of uh credibility um um, by by saying we're part of the international community and we've demonstrated that because we've signed the convention and uh, where we cooperate with UNHCR. Um, and once you get to the case we just discussed, uh, of Bangladesh, UNHCR acts as a kind of uh, instrument or, or kind of clearinghouse, helping to to manage huge amounts of money that are being. Um, organized, uh, collected through the United Nations member states and helping to mobilize um, hundreds of non-governmental organizations, what are called at the time voluntary agencies, what we now call NGOs or non-governmental organizations. So it becomes a kind of useful uh, element in in international uh, politics and the kind of cornerstone of what's now called the international refugee regime. Nevertheless, uh, it it, it remains kind of bound or constrained, partly by the fact that it relies upon contributions from member states. Now, I'm not sure, I I can't remember reading whether the the Trump administration was cutting its contribution to UNHCR, probably was. but it was an indication that an organization like the like UNHCR relies upon contributions that that, otherwise it can't it can't function so it's always got to bear in mind that um, someone else is paying paying us and and that's member states Um, and the other thing as I as I said a moment ago is that um, the significance of, of state sovereignty means that um states are at liberty to say we'll take care of this thank you very much uh please stay out of our um, territory um but you know there are some situations i think of of um, cambodian uh, refugees in the 1970s so these are you know not unlike the armenian refugees and the jewish refugees we spoke about earlier they, they are the survivors of genocide who have moved into Thailand to escape the Khmer Rouge um, and they're living in refugee camps in large numbers along the Thai-Cambodian border. Well, the Thai government, it hasn't got the capacity to um, support large numbers of Cambodian uh, refugees. So here you have an example where uh, a state is happy to enlist the support of UNHCR because it knows that UNHCR can you know tap sources of funding and get NGOs involved um and um and that's important but then there are also debates within UNHCR UNHCR about what should we be doing what what is it that we should be what's our rationale what's our purpose um and so i haven't got time to to go into this in detail, but I think there are two things that are important in the evolution of UNHCR. One is that it increasingly gets interest in ideas of development, um, and what that means is that if you're looking at low-income countries where a lot of the world's refugees tend to tend to be, um, you have situations where refugees have have presented themselves in large numbers, and this creates enormous strain on resources locally and pressure points because local communities say we can't support we can't support refugees how, how can we do this so UNHCR comes on the scene in the 60s 70s and says well here we've got projects we can put refugees into camps or we can we can help through tapping development funds which means that everybody benefits refugees are looked after and here there's some there's some employment opportunities for you or, or, or aid. So UNHCR develops its own kind of development agenda In the um, it, it, certainly by the 1970s. That's one thing. The other thing about the evolution of UNHCR is that it increasingly says we should be interested in repatriation. Um, and you have UNHCR involved along with other organizations, repatriation in the Horn of Africa, repatriation... Um, of uh, uh, Vietnamese, for example, in the 1980s to, to Vietnam, um, on the grounds that it's what they call a durable solution. Refugees have been displaced. How do we solve the problem? We encourage repatriation. And you think, great, repatriation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nice sounding word. Patria, repatriate. Until you realize that it's often taking place, um, Without refugees agreement or without their participation. Um, so UNHCR agrees with, a, with the two countries involved where refugees are, where they should be repatriated to, to engineer repatriation. And this is sometimes a very painful process. Um, so, you know, you, you can say UNHCR is a good institution, you um, know, in force for good. Better that it exists than it does not exist. I, I firmly believe that, but it doesn't mean that everything it does, it does with kind of squeaky, squeaky clean hands.
1: Yeah, I um, I do also believe that about the UNHCR, but I think the more I learn about it, the more I am coming up with those, discovering those moments where they they do things without refugees' permission or do things that don't seem quite squeaky clean, like you said. So I think that it is an interesting conversation to have.
0: Well, it's it's happening within UNHCR. I mean, UNHCR is—is I mean, when it began, so we're talking sort of seventy odd years ago, it was basically a small club of white men, not entirely, but very largely. Uh, It's now much more multinational. Uh, It's much more diverse, but it still cannot altogether escape the idea that although it speaks. The cosy language of repatriation, or participation, or resilience—there are lots of kind of buzzwords around UNHCR that it struggles with the idea of a genuine partnership, because it's much easier to say refugees, special kind of humanity, victims, um, degraded—you know, not not quite human. So therefore, we need to be assisting them in a kind of Patronizing way, and and you know I've always struggled against that idea that we that we bracket off refugees as a kind of distinct form of 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 humankind that they're not. And and why is it that they're treated as people who have to have things done to them rather than as people who can be actively involved and consulted in their own future?
1: yeah that's um that's a, a question that we've had come up a lot on our show um i think especially in the u.s context at least during the last several years the two narratives have been either refugees as invaders or refugees as people without agency that need to be helped and both of those narratives are dehumanizing so that's a, also a really important conversation to be had
0: and 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 also a it, it, it's it's it, it takes us back to where we began in Russia in 1915, because I can find you plenty of examples where there's this mobilisation of charity uh, and self mobilisation. You know, refugees helping themselves, um, uh, and and they're depicted or represented as 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 victims, suffering victims. Well, you know, suffering victims. What what can you do except reach out a, a hand of, of friendship and support? But you also get this parallel narrative of refugees as what on earth are they doing? You know, my life was all right until all of a sudden I've got thousands of refugees banging on the door, and so it's it's never, it seems to me as a historian, never possible to say there's a pure narrative of victimhood going on here, or or a pure narrative of 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 the invader. Uh, they often go you know closely hand in hand.
1: Next, I wanted to walk forward a bit in time. Since the UNHCR originally was meant to help World War II refugees and now it has no geographic or time restrictions due to a later convention called the 1967 Protocol, I asked Peter what trends were seen in the rise of new refugee conflicts after the late 1940s and early 50s. Immediately, things like decolonization, ethnic conflicts, and state collapse came to my mind, but I wanted to hear what he sees as a historian
0: yeah uh, I, I mean we can we can talk about eth- ethnic um cleansing or 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 confrontation um and and find plenty of examples of it the classic e- examples that come to mind in the late 20th century would be um, yugoslavia the wars of former yugoslavia um and um in the early to mid 1990s uh, events in rwanda uh Both raising questions about ethnic cleansing and 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 genocide, Uh, both creating the same sorts of issues of survivors who are displaced, Um, and and both of them um, involving uh, UNHCR and and voluntary organisations, and and both of them failures of you know of international on an international scale, leaving you know millions in their wake. but I think we we can, if we're talking about ethnic conflict and civil war in our discussion, we've already seen that these are not new ph- phenomena. So I, I I think what's distinctive, perhaps, is, is that in the case of Rwanda, there are feelings that people were left abandoned you know the international community might have done more but failed to do so it was left really picking up the pieces um in, in the case of yugoslavia i mean what's always struck me is that this was a stable state and until the 1990s you know com- communism held it together um you could argue that communism held the soviet union together um uh, and but although there've been instances of conflict in the former soviet union so georgia the recent uh, war between armenia and azerbaijan uh conflict in ukraine it it hasn't produced the same level of catastrophic bloodletting that you have in in former yugoslavia um and and that's something i still struggle to comprehend but I'm mindful of the fact that in the case of former Yugoslavia, one of the key actors was the Serbian state. And as as it got embroiled in a conflict sometimes of its own making, um, it capitalized on images of the, 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 the Serbian nation as a persecuted nation. Um, and one of the things that always interested me as a historian was that as serbia promoted itself as the victim in this conflict rather than the perpetrator it said yes we have to remember what happened in 1916 serbia uh 15 and 16 serbia was um invaded by the <coughs> Habsburg, by the austrian armies and a third of the serbian nation had to flee so don't tell us that we're um the perpetrator uh, we're the victims as we were in the first world war um, not sure how how far i've gone in answering your your question but i mean i I think there are there are issues around state collapse um, in in both cases that suggest that you know, a historical perspective can help here why 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 is there so much alarm on the part of a of a Serbian population uh, it's the kind of intensification of, of ideas of suffering that have a long um, genealogy in the case of rwanda uh one of the things that's striking there is that rwanda um 30 years before the genocide had been a colony of belgium um and the the collapse of the of the belgian uh colonial rule had it, had it had created a refugee crisis in, in, in 1959 through to 1962. So, so in each case, we can see kind of antecedents of, 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 of conflict. And, and it becomes easy for one side to, to point to, uh, you know, persecution or victimization in, in, in previous times and say, well, you know, we're not the perpetrator. We're the victim here.
1: Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I just have two more questions um, but I think going off of this answer that you just gave as a historian and looking at the refugee crisis through a historical lens how what do you make of the current state of the world today the migration situation right now
0: I think if we look at it um, from a purely European or even a British perspective you get a very partial Parochial view of what's going on. Uh, I can't speak for the United States, um, although obviously I am aware of you know, debates and practices over the last few years in relation to um, the, the southern part of the, you know, the South, of the United States, or its southern uh, border. Um, in the UK, there's a lot of political talk um, and and uh, sometimes anxiety about. Um, refugees who come knocking on the door. Um, but what is usually overlooked is that the numbers are tiny uh, in proportion to the world's refugee population. Um, so most of the world's refugees, if we think about it t- today, um, are in Syria or in adjacent states, or in Afghanistan or in adjacent states, or in Sudan, South Sudan. In adjacent states this this is uh, and and we now think of of, of um bangladesh as hosting rohingya uh, muslims persecuted uh, by the state of, of myanmar um so from time to time these catastrophes register uh, on the radar of, of, of british politics as i'm sure they do in u.s politics but it can often be a very inward looking conversation um that that really thinks of of the United states as a as a, as a particular uh in a particular situation of you know, threat or you mentioned the word invasion and the idea of a flood or invasion circulates from time to time in, in britain so I think one of the things that we can do as historians is is to is to unsettle if I can use the title of my book again to unsettle the idea that um that it's all happening in one part of the world in the privileged west um and the other thing we can do is even more as historians is 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 confront a a word that's often used which is unprecedented so you know the talk since 2015 was often of an unprecedented refugee crisis that was those the three words that tripped you know off everyone's tongue and i have to say you know, there are precedents; it's not unprecedented. So it becomes, you know, incumbent on us to think what is precedented and and what is unprecedented. And if you say, "Well, the numbers are unprecedented," I can say, "No, they're not," as a historian. If if you say um, the um, the challenge of addressing uh, the refugee crisis is unprecedented, I can say, "No, it's not," you know, because you've only got to go back to to the 1940s for example to see what was happening then so i think this is really important and the other thing i would say about today and it goes back to, to right to the beginning of our conversation Aiden, uh, is can we begin to think even now in 2021 about what a history of refugees will, will look like in 20 years time 50 years time and you know Will we be able to look back on, on 2015 to 2021 uh, and begin to understand refugees as, as flesh and blood people uh, or as groups of, of, of people uh, who, who deserve to be taken seriously um, to, to engage with? But to engage with on, uh, wherever possible on, on terms of equality, rather than I have the power and you don't. Um, so I always think it's, you know, we're in the here and now where there's an emergency. <laughs> yes, but there have been emergencies in the past. And sometimes these emergencies have been resolved satisfactorily. Um, but in doing that, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that, that refugees are not, a; they might be categorized as a distinct part of humanity. You are a refugee. It doesn't mean that we have to follow that the whole way through and think of them as, as a separate as a separate kind of person.
1: Before I let Peter go I wanted to give him a chance to talk about his book which he mentioned during our conversation several times and I also wanted to see what he's currently working on.
0: Okay uh, well I, I started work on, on a book um, at, at the invitation of a publisher um, which was going to be a history of immigration to, to, to Europe and you could see why a publisher was interested in this. There'd been a, a vote to leave the European Union. A lot of that was uh, a debate couched in terms of immigration. And so they wanted me to write about this. I said, yeah, I'll write a book about this. But actually what I want to write a book about is, is the history of Europe and a history of Europe on the move. Um, by, by which I meant that it's, it's not just about immigration. Uh, the history of Europe since 1945, is a history of migration of people coming and going um, and to, to think of it as migration means that we can talk about internal migration so you could say all sorts of significant things about internal migration in italy for example or spain or the soviet union let's people think about the soviet union what is it about immigration soviet union people couldn't come they couldn't go wait a minute there's a massive movement of people within the frontiers of the Soviet Union. So let's let's write about that as well. Then I wanted to talk about refugees, but to to talk about this in ways that that talk not just about policy and not just about the catastrophes that we've talked about the wars and the civil wars, but also to think about how refugees um, acted themselves and how they helped one another, and the same with with migrant workers. So it was it was about partly about what I call the violent peacetime after the Second World War, uh, when when things were were far from straightforwardly peaceful. Um, so it was about this violence, <clears throat> uh, but it was also about rebuilding. And then it was about about the consequences of decolonization. You know, Italy, uh, the Netherlands, Britain, France, Portugal later on, all of this decolonization you know, came home, so to speak, in in the shape of of people, um, most dramatically in the case of France, really really great, often very poignant, but but great to write about the the, the consequences of the French uh, decolonisation in the late fifties through to the nineteen seventies. Um, so it it's, it covers an awful lot of ground, it, and uh, there's lots more to say. And I've got more more notes if I was you know doing the book again or a new edition. But right now I'm doing something much more specific and, and that is looking at um, UNHCR and refugees in the 50s and 60s because I've come across all sorts of material in which refugees are writing to UNHCR in the 50s and 60s from different parts of the world and saying, hear my case. And this is unique material uh, because, you know, we, we can't interview people. Uh, in the 50s, 60s, were very unlikely to be able to interview people who were refugees so long ago, but we've got their voices. Um, So how did they express themselves? Uh, In what kind of terms? What did they want? Uh, And and how how were they received? So it's a kind of uh, attempt to, to write a refugee history with refugees to the foreground rather than in the background.
1: That was our guest, Professor Peter Catrell, talking with us again about the history of modern refugees and his new book, The Unsettling of Europe. There's a link to buy the book in our show notes if you want to check it out. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. We'd love to do more historical episodes in the future, so let us know what time periods, locations, and stories you'd like to learn more about by contacting us via email, on social media, or in the comments wherever you get your podcasts. As always, a huge thank you to Maxi International House for making our show possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.